0: Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host today. And I'm joined, as always, by my two co-podcasters. First up, on the line from Chicago, Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, man? And, as always, here in studio, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. You guys excited? Uh, How was your first week of NBA basketball? How did it treat you?
1: We are three games into the season, and it's time to give up on the Knicks already.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: Uh, Especially,
0: you know, when Chris Stapps is not having a good game, there's just zero reason to watch this team, I think.
1: No, it's good, though. We can... uh Whatever. We can watch Kylo Quinn, you know, uh, get those minutes instead of uh, whatever. We we don't have to talk about the (laughs) stupid Knicks. Yeah, yeah.
0: We'll save the Knicks for maybe like when we talk about tanking later in the season. Uh, On today's show, though, we're going to be talking about who else but Giannis Adetokounmpo and his tremendous start to the season and whether it means the NBA has a new potential MVP on its hands. Also, we'll investigate the disaster zone that was the Phoenix Suns' first week of the season, and we're going to present a special small sample on the new-look Oklahoma City Thunder. You ready, guys? Okay, so at the top of each show, we like to talk about something rumbling in the news around the league, and maybe the biggest early-season disaster to gawk at in the first week of the season has been the Phoenix Suns. So what... Could go wrong for the Suns that didn't in the first week. They, first of all, were beaten by a combined 92 points in their first three games. That was an NBA record for the worst scoring differential by a team in its first three games. Then uh, sometime in the afternoon on Sunday, uh, their star point guard, Eric Bledsoe, tweeted out, I don't want to be here. Uh, and uh, later he claimed that he meant that he was at the hair salon and he didn't want to be there. Uh, I don't think anyone was buying that necessarily. Uh, 68 minutes after that, it, it came out and was reported that the Suns had fired their coach, Earl Watson. According to the Elias Sports Bureau, that is tied for the second fastest coaching change in NBA history, three games into the season, tied with Chick Riser, who was fired from the 1953 Baltimore Bullets after three games. If you'll remember, Mike Brown was fired five games into the season, a couple years ago from the Lakers, but somehow Earl Watson beat that out. And then finally, Ryan McDonough, the GM of the Suns, told reporters on Monday that Bledsoe won't be with us going forward. That was a quote from him. So I just want to open this up and kind of unpack what's going on with the Suns. First of all, uh, how did they get to this point? What what exactly went wrong in those three games? Is it just a sign of unprepared coaching? I know oftentimes us as stat heads say that coaches are pretty interchangeable, but it, is this a case where just Earl Watson was so far in over his head that it was
2: appropriate to fire him three games into the season? I mean, when I look at what happened there, there, there were a lot of structural questions and problems before we even get to this season. A lot of fans there were not happy that Earl Watson was given the job in the first place is the interim guy where they removed his interim tag. I think they were something like what, nine and thirty-two or nine and thirty-five or nine and forty-two, something crazy the year that he finished out as an interim coach. And they ended up just giving him the job without interviewing anybody else. And normally you do something to earn that job or you kind of, you know, rally the troops there to get them excited for the next season. And it just didn't seem like there's necessarily any of that. It seemed like a cheap coaching decision that they made to just go ahead and remove the interim tag. There, but when you look at the other, the deeper things there, they just weren't playing any defense. And if you look at one play, you you see Bledsoe's tweet saying, "I don't want to be here." There was the clip making the rounds last week of him driving into the lane, and then kind of having two or three defenders stand right in front of him. And instead of Bledsoe trying to jump over them and get a shot up over them, he just sat flat-footed and like kind of put up, just kind of lofted up a layup off the rim that missed. And it was just like, they're literally not trying. Tyson Chandler literally looks like he's not trying. And it, it's hard three games into a season, a long season, where you're just losing games by that much. Where's the motivation to play? Earl Watson was optimistic about things all the time. He compared them to the Oklahoma City Thunders progression. But I don't see how you keep somebody at that point when there's just nothing to play for and no one's trying.
1: I think it's important to remember, like what Chris is saying, like, all that was bad. But like we knew it was all going to be pretty bad because like this was a team that's like, They've got a bunch of, like, kind of long-term projects and a bunch of veterans, like Eric Bledsoe is one of the older guys on the team, and, like, Tyson Chandler uh, is, like, pretty disengaged, but he's supposed to be, you know, the veteran leadership. But it seems like they're constructed like a team that, like, you're going to try to, you know, build around young players, you know, teach them up, but they kind of have really rough young players and vets who, like, kind of aren't quite good enough to to provide the scaffolding for for that. And so, yeah, like this was always going to be a thing like we talked before the season that Eric Bledsoe is a guy who like he's kind of more interesting as like a trade possibility. He was in the in the talks for the Kyrie trade when uh, Cleveland was shopping him around. And so like this is all very early for this, but it's kind of what we saw coming. Yeah, is this kind of one of the pitfalls
0: of maybe the tanking and building through young players model is that unless you have a coach, and maybe this says something about some of the other coaches of teams that have tanked, like your Brett Brown comes to mind, they were not this bad that it, it really says something that you need to be able to have some sort of stability from the top, uh, and, and maybe that idea that coaches are interchangeable is kind of BS, that that you do need to have some kind of voice there that's that brings some stability if you're going to build around some such a young core of
2: players. I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, there are a lot of teams I, – I do a power rankings thing for ESPN every week with a couple other writers, and I had the Bulls as the worst team in the league last week. Uh, the Knicks were down there as well. The Mavs were down there. The Hawks were down there. None of them were getting beaten the way that the Suns got beat. Keep in mind, one of those three losses they had, those 92-point combined losses – One of those games, they only lost by two points, which means that the other two, basically an average of 45 points that they were losing by. So it's just kind of unacceptable at at that point where we're talking about that. Um, You can't lose like that. It's just too embarrassing. It gets too much negative attention. And for all the things we're talking about with the Suns, they do have Tyson Chandler and Eric Bledsoe. Not like they're great, great players, but they're a lot better than what some of these other teams have. And when you're going out there, you, you should be able to blend that and your young talent and stay competitive. They weren't even coming close to doing that.
1: Right. And I mean, those two are like kind of artifacts of the, the failed push to, to like remain relevant. So uh, Eric Blitzo ended up on the Suns uh, when they were trading with Jared Dudley in the in the J.J. Reddick trade with the Clippers, where there was a three team You know, everyone's moving around. And like that was the last bridge from like those latter day Nash teams. And, like, they brought in Tyson Chandler when they were making a push for LaMarcus Aldridge. They thought, oh, yeah, we're going to make our move. We're going to be good here. And, like, it just never happened after those Nash teams.
0: Yeah. So now that Bledsoe will be on the move— that's kind of a sneaky uh, type of transaction that could shape things in the league going forward because Bledsoe is actually still pretty good. Uh, he, he was pretty good last season, uh, even, even though he's kind of taken off these first three games clearly in Phoenix. So where do you guys think he might land and, and how might that kind of impact the, the actual contenders in the league?
1: Well, I mean the one that uh the one that people keep talking about is Cleveland and I mean one, like that's a lot of point guards, a lot of ball handlers on Cleveland, but I mean with Isaiah out for so as long as he's gonna be out, it, I mean it would make sense. LeBron's, you know, doing spot duty at point guard um already in the season. Yeah. Uh but like the thing with that is uh Bledsoe, like when he was younger at least, uh was known for his defense. He was a very, very good defender. Uh, four years ago, his op- opponents shot 41% when he was guarding them, which is among the best in the league. That's what you expect a big man, like an elite big man like Gobert or Przingis to be doing. And he was doing that from the point guard position. Uh, last year, he was up to 55%, which is what Enos Kanter has given you. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, like his, his shooting's down a little bit, which you would expect with the roster. His defense is down, which you would expect with the roster. But um, like whoever picks him up is going to have to like count on like, him kind of returning to form, too.
2: I I'm really intrigued by one team that I keep hearing come up and obviously I think it's more of hopeful hopeful and wishful thinking but what if Eric Bledsoe went to a team like Milwaukee a, a team that was rumored to want to upgrade at point guard this summer um, You know, you heard about them talking about Derrick Rose as a possibility and bringing in Derrick Rose for free agent conversations. They wanted to upgrade their athleticism because this is such an athletic team already, and you look at everybody they have, and then all of a sudden there's Malcolm Brogdon there, a point guard who's a very good player, a very solid player, but also um, someone that doesn't really fit the athleticism and the length that they really have. All of a sudden you think about plugging Eric Bledsoe in that group, and it's like who wants to run with this team in terms of just the fast pace? up and down tempo. You already see Giannis with the coast-to-coast plays. Who wants to run with a team like Milwaukee if Eric Bledsoe is the point guard and can actually stay healthy?
0: Chris, that is a great segue. Uh, We're going to leave it there briefly to bring you a word from our sponsor, but then we're going to dive right into the Milwaukee Bucks and specifically Giannis Adetokounmpo. We'll be right back. This October, Blue Apron is celebrating its fifth anniversary by bringing back its top 20 recipes from throughout the past five years as picked by you, the Blue Apron community. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. I've used Blue Apron myself, and it is really easy to be able to cook food and make a great homemade meal for yourself. It's also flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your own preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-proportioned ingredients, so it can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. And Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that each ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash takedown in honor of our old podcast, Hot Takedown, RIP. You will love how it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Go to blueapron.com slash takedown. Blue apron, a better way to cook. Okay, the talk of the NBA's opening week hasn't been the Warriors. It hasn't been any of these storylines that we we thought were going to emerge going into the season. It has been about the play of one player, and that is Milwaukee's do everything star, Giannis. The Greek Freak had 32 points, 14 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 blocks, and 1 steal during Monday night's 103-94 win over the Charlotte Hornets, and that was kind of a down game for him. Uh, He also, on the season, is averaging 37 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists, 2 steals, and 1 block per game while shooting 66% from the field. He also has a player efficiency rating of forty point one. One other note on him is he became the first player in NBA history to have at least one hundred and forty seven points, forty three rebounds, and twenty one assists through the first four games of a season. So this is an insane start to the year for Giannis, uh, and he's coming off a season in which he won Most Improved Player, Second Team All NBA, uh, First Player in NBA history to finish in the top twenty of every single major statistical category according to NBA.com but I want to unpack these first few games of this season by Giannis and ask first of all what is he doing this year that's different why is he able to dominate so much even compared to his form last season which was really
2: good when I look at what he's doing this season I just think he's more under control and it's it's something where he's he's not hesitating at all anymore i just kind of feel like i've seen all these memes on twitter lately kind of with the morpheus memes and stuff like that from the matrix and basically it's just kind of like he realizes what he can do now and he's not thinking the game through it was almost like those first couple years you could really watch him hesitating and trying to think through like okay so if i get the ball here and i dribble toward my left and go over my left shoulder what do, where do i go with the ball if they cut that off where am i passing the ball and now he knows those things he knows his teammates pretty well he knows where guys are supposed to be he knows where help defense is coming from and it's allowing him to play quicker and not think through the game as opposed to just playing it
1: yeah for me it's also like sometimes players come back over the off season and you, like you notice certain parts of their game have gotten just better and, like, that informs, like, the way that they, they make their decisions. And They went into the lab. Right. So he went into the lab, and Giannis came out with a tighter handle. And that's allowing him to, like, he is making decisions faster, but he's getting to the spots on the floor um, with one dribble less. And he's getting there, like, a little more under control. And, like, that handle, like, just changes everything. That's kind of the same thing that happened with Steph Curry in that 2015-16 season when he came out on fire. He had, like, a 41 PER through the first, like, two weeks or something like that and everyone was like oh we can't keep this up and like he kept it up all season but like it was there was a fundamental change in the way that like he could do things not just like the way that like he saw the floor
0: and it's very rare i think to see a player improve their usage rate and their assist rate while also improving their turnover rate that's almost unheard of I think especially when you're up in the levels that he is right now his usage rate according to NBA.com is 35.3 percent oh and he's also improved his uh, his shooting efficiency and now his true shooting percentage is basically 70 percent
2: on the season and he's getting to the line 10 times a game too I mean it's just it's kind of a little bit of everything you know he's he makes plays defensively. He's just kind of decides he's going to reach in and knock a ball loose and, and basically turn a game for them that they're about to lose. He's doing a little bit of everything. And the, the scary part is that he's not shooting well. And, I mean, we'll probably get to that a little bit anyway, that he's not someone that can really hit a jump shot. And his teammates aren't great, great shooters. I mean, I looked at some of the numbers that – He has, just passing the ball out of double teams and passing the ball out of pick and rolls. His teammates aren't knocking down those shots yet, and so the rest of the team's offense still will probably come around more and more as Giannis continues to kind of tear up the league. They're going to have to put more defensive attention on him, not like they haven't already been doing that, but his teammates aren't even really knocking down their shots yet.
0: Yeah, it's really insane how much he is attacking the rim Basically at will. Uh, Here's here's an insane stat. So he's scoring 26.5 points per game in the paint alone that's his scoring average in the paint that would be one of the highest scoring averages in the league just in general but he's getting to the basket have we ever seen anybody who can get to the basket like that before I know Chris you're working on a story uh specifically about just how few strides he he needs to be able to get to the basket from the perimeter because he's so long is that a big part of it just being able to kind of blow past guys in so few
2: steps that's definitely part of it I mean it's traditionally when you think about playing defense in the nba you normally think you know you've got two three seconds to catch your breath after a player misses a shot and so i was talking to marvin williams about that the other night after the charlotte game the Giannis had those 32 points in and i asked marvin williams like as a as the guy that has to defend him for the whole game and has defended him in the past like what do you kind of find yourself hoping for when you guard somebody like that do you would you prefer that he try to post you up would you prefer that he try to face up against you? Obviously, you want him to take a jump shot, but he has no need to do that because he's getting to the basket anyway. And he's like, man, all I hope for is just that we can make a shot so that he's not trying to dribble the ball down our throat in transition. Like, that's really all I want. And that tells you so much because they literally don't have a way to stop him. It's a question of who's going to stand up and try to guard him at the, you know, when he's coming back in transition. But it's also just a question of, like, even if we're all lined up there, can we stop him? The other thing we mentioned before, what he's gotten better at, his footwork is a lot better. You saw a really nasty step-through move he had the other day um, in transition. It's just
1: like, where did that come from? But he's, he's really picked up the intensity of everything he's doing this year. Right. So it's, it's actually crazy the way that, like, yeah, so Giannis is uh, scoring all these points in the paint. and. Like, that's some. So, a lot of his comps are big men. So, I thought I had like this very, very fashionable comparison. I was going to compare him to Kevin Garnett. He's like, oh, yeah, he looks really great on the perimeter, but like, actually, and it turns out that. Like a young KG. Like a, like a young KG, but it turns out that like 538's Carmelo, you know, projection model has KG as his top comp. <laughs> but like, as we're talking about him, like, that's all like the way he's playing is also the way that like a young Tony Parker used to play or like Tony Parker used to lead the league in points in the paint. And he shot like over 50% uh, in there every year because like, there was just nothing you could do. But like, yeah, he's, he's combining, like, a lot of different players, a lot of disparate players, like, the way he's, he's doing this.
0: Yeah, the idea of, like, a seven-foot Tony Parker is terrifying and really unlike anything we've seen. The uh, The thing with KG was that eventually he did add that really lethal mid-range shot from maybe, like, just inside the, the three-point line and maybe, you know, also a fade away from the post. And I'm wondering if that's sort of the next step for Giannis still, the idea that he could get better even from what he's done early in this season in the way that he's been playing. Of his 58 baskets that he's made uh, this year so far, only one has been a three-pointer, and he wasn't known for being a three-point shooter. Even last year, he shot 27% from the floor, but he's also hitting 75% from the line. That's around his career average, too, so not a terrible shooter. It's not like we're talking about Shaq here or somebody that just has no hope of being able to make shots from outside the, the protected area. So does that strike you as sort of the next step for him is being able to kind of make that KG-like development of that consistent mid-range shot, especially as defenses presumably start to pack it in on him and, and even with his length, don't let him go to the basket every time he
1: wants to. So it's it's one of two things he has to do. So, like, one is, yes, like, there were a couple of plays in the Charlotte game where they just laid off him, and, like, he rattled one in, uh, get, hit the rim, like, five different right, times. Right, exactly. And I saw,
0: and I noticed that. I was like, oh, he's finally taking a, a deep shot. And then
1: it bounced around, like, a million times and finally fell in. Yeah, but it went in. Uh, but the other thing is, like, teams used to do that against against Parker, against Rajon Rondo. and Against LeBron to a certain extent early in his career, right? Mm-hmm. And like and so it's like a double edged thing where like if you back too far off you give him like one too much space but like two you let him get a running start at you if he actually does want to you know attack you anyway but uh like all those guys ended up like adjusting so that they could use that extra space to find to find passing lanes to to find guys off the dribble and and that's something that like he's he's a very good passer obviously but like he's not he doesn't create quite that way yet.
2: And that's the crazy thing here is that first of all there's two things one He's still 22, and we don't, we don't necessarily mention the fact that he's only 22. I think we have that tendency, too, with Kyrie, who's 25. These guys that have been in the league for five years and are still younger than you know people that are in college. And so that, that's number one part of it. The second thing is that, like Kyle said, he's already doing so much without the ability to take a jump shot. I'm not even sure how him having a jump shot would fundamentally change how you guard him, you obviously would give him a little bit less space because you don't want him to pop a J in your face. But, I mean, you're not going to leave him that much less space at this point either because you need to give him just enough space so that he can't drive right past you. And, I mean, that's the crazy thing here is that even when you give him a ton of room to try to to block his progress to the basket – he still is fast enough and kind of these strides that he's able to take can go past you and Eurostep through you to be able to get where he needs to go. And so that's, I'm not even fundamentally sure how him developing a jump shot would really change the way you defend them because he's close to unguardable anyway. That's what's so scary about all this.
0: Yeah, and Chris, that's a great point about his age because, uh, like you said, he's not even 23 yet. This was basically the same stage of uh, a career or the same age at which LeBron really made a, a big leap forward from being one of the best players in the league to being this clear-cut best player in the league, constant MVP. The only way he wouldn't win the MVP was because of voter fatigue and and various other kind of narrative-based uh, reasons. And so it, it does strike me as if he does follow that career path, this would really fit that same uh, trajectory making this
2: huge stride at, at this particular age. And, and the other thing with that, too, um, is that Giannis, I mean, not to say that he's holding out on us and he's got this great jump shot he just hasn't used. Jason Kidd kind of instructed both him and Jabari Parker not to take jump shots earlier in their career. Um, it kind of fits a little bit of what Jason Kidd did where he became... A much better jump shooter later in his career he was a a real struggle for him just trying to make jumpers especially threes early on and then started to work on it a lot and then as he developed his inside game started to work his way out and that's kind of what Parker did Parker was shooting 40% for the better part of last season before he got hurt and so I mean I I think Giannis is so young it'll come around for him at some point he might not ever be a 40% shooter from three but if he can get to 30 consistently and basically be like Dwayne Wade. I mean, we're talking about, like we said, a seven-foot Tony Parker, Dwayne Wade situation. Maybe not that sort of shiftiness, but, I mean, nobody wants to deal with this guy in the paint because if he's within five feet of the basket, he can just basically do one of those Space Jam dunks.
0: Yeah, and one question that comes to mind based on his... Development and and if he has taken this leap to this MVP conversation is is this how a team like Milwaukee so a small market uh, a team that's not a very sexy free agent destination uh, and and has traditionally kind of struggled to to find superstars and keep them even going back to Lou Alcindor Kareem Abdul Jabbar uh, leaving there uh, for for L A back in the seventies. Is this how the next you know, contending team materializes? Uh, I think you may have written a story, uh, Chris, about how the team that can beat the Warriors doesn't exist yet. This was around when the Warriors won uh, handily in the finals last summer. Uh, and, and it kind of seems like Milwaukee has a window. Uh, they signed him to an extension, uh, Giannis to an extension last summer that uh, goes through not just this year, but the three years after that. Is this the window in which they can kind of build up assets and build people around this kind of transcendental talent if he does follow the the kind of MVP-level career path, and that's how the next Warriors killer comes out? Or is that wishful thinking?
1: So I think I think it's important. So, like, th- we've talked about this the last several weeks, like the, the draft and lottery reform. I think it's really important that Giannis was the 15th pick and he was the 15th pick in what's uh, generally seen as a really weak draft pool so it was that was the Anthony Bennett draft and Oladipo went second uh whatever Cody Zeller was fourth oh uh, man and that's also the first draft where the 76ers were like really going in on uh like we're going to, to tear this thing down and you know just rip it all up start from the beginning and they took Michael Carter-Williams a few spots ahead of Giannis where like they started this trend where they would stock up on point guards and centers which are two of like the most flush uh kind of players which are safe picks right and so like there are two things happening here one is like you can find value late in the draft and two is that uh you have to you know take big swings like don't just like get all this draft equity and use it on safe players like guys that you're pretty sure are going to be pretty good and so like with lottery reform coming in and teams that are you know kind of on the edge of the playoffs uh having you know access to better draft picks, I think teams might be a little less uh, inclined to go full Sixers when like the model here is like, well, yeah, you have to find Giannis, but you can find Giannis.
2: When, when I think about the, the Bucks, I mean, what stands out to me now is just that I'm, I'm not totally sure this is a team that can beat the Warriors yet. You obviously need the, the transcendent player. You have that now. I, it, a lot of it hinges, I think, on what Jabari Parker becomes or whether he can stay healthy because – He's, a, he's in a situation now where If they do commit real money to him It's going to clog up some cap space when, they, when that time comes And then they still don't have quite as much shooting As I would like To really play that sort of game With the Warriors The Warriors are just going to be a more efficient team In most cases just because of the shots that they can get And the way that they can beat you by hitting threes When obviously for obvious reasons And Giannis and the way he plays He's going to be shooting a lot of twos And so I I, I think the Bucks have some potential to do it, but they still need one more guy. And at this point now, it looks like they're going to be too good to get that guy through the draft. I'm just wondering who who you could really add to that team. Maybe it is a Bledsoe type. I don't think so. But maybe it is upgrading the point guard position and having Brogdon be a bench guy for you. Um, I like that he brings a sense of calm to their starting lineup. But there's still something that they're missing there. Uh, maybe it's Parker's secondary scoring. But I think even beyond that, there's something – there's, like, one more thing that they need, and I'm not exactly sure what it is. I can't
1: put my finger on it. They do still have a few uh, few young players who, who can, you know, potentially grow into that. Like, Jabari uh, has looked good when, like, Jabari's been healthy and out there. Vaughn Maker's another guy who, like, he just needs the jump shot to come along a little more. Like, he's, you know, obviously good in transition and you know, whatever else. And, like, these are guys who, like, can give them that little extra something, uh, like, I'm not sure that like Brogden moving to the bench is going to be the best for them. Like they pretty clearly missed him on Monday, uh, but like I mean that obviously depends on who they replace him with too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and uh, I think either way, based on what we talked about in the preseason, which was this mass exodus of talent away from the East, uh, if Giannis really is this transcendent superstar, that does kind of change things and make it a little bit easier, even if they don't get those extra pieces, for Milwaukee to kind of rise up and at least provide just one other team, another extra team in the mix that that might be uh, labeled a contender at some point. Okay, so let's leave it there on Milwaukee. I'm sure we will revisit Giannis and his entire team uh, at various points during the season because it's just incredible what he's doing so far, uh, and we're going to keep an eye on it throughout the year. But first, let's hear a word from another sponsor. Fall is upon us, but you can keep the spirit of the summer in bloom all year round with 1-800-Flowers.com. For a limited time, 1-800-Flowers is giving you the option of red or assorted roses for the same amazing price of $29.99. And when you order these beautiful roses, 1-800-Flowers will give you another dozen plus a vase absolutely free. That's up to 50% off the original price. This beautiful bouquet of red or assorted roses will leave your loved one stunned without spending a fortune. You can't make a wrong choice. Amazing roses at an unbeatable price. These gorgeous roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. One dozen red or assorted roses for only $29.99 plus another dozen and a vase for free is an unreal deal. There's 1-800-Flowers.com and then there's everybody else. To order a dozen red or assorted roses, plus an extra bouquet and a vase for just $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter the code LAB, L-A-B. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code LAB. All right, so let's wrap up the show with a segment that we like to call Small Sample. This is where we discuss an emerging trend that doesn't have a lot of data behind it yet, but might just end up being meaningful by season's end. And this week, our small sample is going to be brought by Kyle. What do you have for us?
1: So all of a sudden, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who have traditionally been one of the best or usually the best rebounding team in the league for like going on like half a decade and like this is back to like Kendrick Perkins era, right, yeah, um like they've just been always been really stocked in the front court, and uh this year they just can't rebound through three games, they are rebounding forty seven and a half percent of like available rebounds, and that's good for twenty fourth in the league. They were first last year, they've been in the top three uh for again a couple years, and uh they just they just can't do it. Carmelo has. Started at power forward, and he has collected more made threes than uh, total rebounds. Oh, man. Which is, is you know, just not ideal. And so the question is, uh, like, how much is this affecting them? Like, they've uh, kind of disappointed. We expected there's going to be a little bit of adjustment. But, uh, like, the roster is really imbalanced. Uh, they're playing almost exclusively small ball lineups because they just don't have bigs to, to put in there because they traded a lot of two for one. They traded a lot of big for small. That leaves them with a pretty pretty mid heavy wing heavy roster and like so far like that's led to like not many rebounds
2: yeah and i i wonder with them too i've i put myself out there i've had like a a lot more bold predictions this year than in previous years uh one of them looks good so far although for a bad reason gordon hayward's injury might lead way to my toronto pick being right for the atlantic but i wonder with oklahoma city i I came out last week and said that I think that their defense will be the best one in the league by season's end. And immediately people are like, whoa, like, have you not seen Golden State play for the last couple of years? Golden State hasn't had a top defense technically for the last couple of years. The Spurs are normally a better bet there. But I, I really like the fact that Oklahoma City was a top ten defense already. They were adding Paul George to the mix without really losing any of their elite defenders. Steven Adams is pretty good. Robertson's a good defender. Um, Carmelo is much better at at the four than he is at the three Russell Westbrook won't have to do as much on offense now so maybe he'll play harder defense but if you look at the idea that maybe they're not going to rebound as well if they give up more uh, offensive rebounds to their opponents that could kind of spike the other team's offense a little bit and make it more difficult for them I already saw that be the issue a little bit with the Minnesota game that they lost in the last second Um, so it'll be interesting to, to watch Carmelo's a good rebounder For a a small ball power forward, but that doesn't necessarily make him a great rebounder against power forwards in general, traditional power forwards.
0: Yeah, and one interesting thing is even if it doesn't affect their defense, I mean, they're still in the top 10 in efficiency at that end of the floor. I don't know how long that's going to last, but it does seem to have like fundamentally changed their defensive blueprint. Now they're leading the league in turnovers forced, but I'm not sure that particular stat is as sticky as something like rebounding. It seems like just anecdotally, I don't necessarily have numbers to back this up, but it does seem like teams that make their money through, you know, getting stops and grabbing the rebound uh, seem a little bit more ironclad. On defense than teams that kind of need to force turnovers and need to force at the other end uh, fast break points off of those turnovers. And that's an area where the Thunder just seem to be at the offensive end really struggling to kind of figure out how these guys fit. It's three games in the season, though, so I assume they'll get better at that end. Uh, But it does kind of change the
1: complexion of the team. Right, I mean, so we're going to slip into coach speak a little bit, but, like, (laughs) the defensive possession isn't over until you get the rebound. Right. And so, like, getting the rebound is kind of the bedrock. Like, uh, again, like, we keep teasing Nate's thing, but, like, turnovers that uh, start a fast break are really, really valuable. So, like, steals are kind of underrated in a lot of the systems. But but still, like, you have to end the possession. And, like, on the other side, too, uh, they got a lot of offensive rebounds last year. Um, In 2016-17, they had, like, they led the league at, like, 28% of available offensive rebounds they got and that's uh has netted out to like their second chance points are down four four points on you know combining both sides of the ball so like in games where that are close like four points is a lot right exactly so and the last thing is uh Westbrook got a lot of crap last year for like stat padding which is like he got a lot of cheap rebounds and like that this so the thing is like that's obviously not exclusive to Westbrook Every star in the league gets that, but people um, acted like it was exclusive. All right, to they, they acted like it was. Oh well, uh, Westbrook is you know blowing up all these triple doubles and like they're meaningless and like essentially like they are. But whatever. <laughs> uh, the thing is, uh, we're getting three stars of their team combining and expecting their rebound rate to to carry over. And so part of this might be like there's a natural inflation of all stars, um, like not all star, but like all star players. Uh, Like have a little bit of inflation to their rebound, where like the star player you know gets to stand next to the rim for free throws, and because those are the easiest to collect, and like those get to you know pat their stats a little bit, and so with all three of them coming in, like that's another thing where like they look like they should all rebound really well as a unit, but like that just hasn't happened yet.
0: Cool. Let's leave it there, and uh, that'll be another thing. I mean, OKC is fascinating. We'll probably do a segment on them uh, on an entire show at some point during the season. Okay, that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, guys. Uh, Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner, as always, is Chad Matlin. We also receive production assistance from our intern, Daniel Levitt. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. And whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are there. We're on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. You can also find us in the Listen tab of your ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to rate and review the show. It helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.